So, um, before we focus on the Word this, this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the Word. And then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that we have you to come to in times of trouble, that there's no difficulty in this life that is not surmountable by your word, and that between your word and the spirit, your spirit that you have given us, we have the ability to face and surmount any, any difficulty that we face in life, and uh, you strengthen us and encourage us as we go through these various trials. And Father, we just specifically remember tonight uh, Jim and Linda Speedy, as well as Dar and Arlene Carner, and we just pray that you would uh, uh, be with both of them and for Dar and for Jim, and that they would, uh, we just pray that they would be responsive to uh, whatever treatment that they're being given. And, uh, Father, we know that uh, their times are in your hands, and so we just uh, commit their care ultimately to you and uh, your wisdom and your uh, sovereign will. Father, we thank you for the fact that we have your word that comforts us in all times and all areas of our life. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we can think clearly and precisely about what we study and that we might uh, come to understand in a better way the things that we are studying because so often there are difficult areas for us in terms of our experience and we let our emotions and our own experience carry us away instead of just focusing upon the eternal truths of your word. So we pray that uh, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit this evening we'll be able to clearly understand your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the passage we've been studying as sort of our stepping off spot comes from Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 4, actually. And in Acts chapter 4, we have the situation where the Sanhedrin has met, and they are giving an command to uh, Paul, I mean Peter and John, and in verse 18 of Acts 4, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So how do they respond to this command, this mandate by a legitimate authority? The Sanhedrin had not only religious authority, but they also were had a measure of political authority in Judea. Verse 19 Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So the topic has been, what are the limitations on authority? Are there circumstances or situations in which a believer is justified in disobeying an authority over him? And I began by pointing out that there are different realms of authority over us that God has established. First of all, there is divine authority over us. Then there is the authority within uh, marriage and the divine institution of marriage, which is a second divine institution. There's the authority of God over us in the, I mean, the authority God has set over us in the family, which are the parents. And in the uh, fourth divine institution of human government, there's the authority that God has established in human government. 
And this is seen very clearly in a number of key passages in Scripture. We've looked at Romans 13 and also uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to summarize briefly here what we learned from Romans 13. First of all, Christians are to submit to government authorities. Christians are to submit to government authorities. There is uh, uh, the established the principles in Romans 13 have to do with um, the fact that Christians are not a law unto themselves. They are under authority. These authorities are legitimate, and so Christians are to submit to the government. Second, government authorities, whether saved or unsaved, are appointed by God. All authority, whether right or wrong, is appointed by God. Now, we may have to qualify the right or wrong. We'll do that some tonight. But there are times when we are going to disagree with authority on different bases. You may disagree with a parent. You may disagree with a husband. You may disagree with the government and think something is wrong when they are mandating it and, or think something you should do um, differently. But does that justify disobedience to government and under what conditions? That's really the issue. So government authorities, whether saved or unsaved, are appointed by God because he's established that authority. So, And we have to remember that Paul is writing at the time under the administration of Nero. Now, we have to recognize that when Paul wrote Romans, it's in the early period of Nero's reign when Nero was, was uh, fairly good, and he is recognized by the writers of that period as being a uh, good emperor, but that changed after his first six or seven years. Third point we learned is that resisting government authority is the same as resisting God, and he will bring divine judgment on someone. And that happens, you, you, we saw the same parallels within the family and within marriage, that we obey the authority over us as we obey God. There is this analogy that is made between the two. That, and the reason for this is that inherent in the very principle of, of submission to authority, it, when that is violated, then that follows in the sin of Satan prior to uh, prior, prior to the creation of man, the, the original sin in the universe. And the, the, the issue is, is that once we step out and we make a decision to violate an authority, somebody's making a judgment about whether that authority is right or wrong. So the point we'll see in Scripture is that when you have biblical examples of disobedience to authority, it is because a lower authority is violating the mandates of a higher authority. So we're not stepping out on our own and saying, well, I just don't like what you're telling me to do, so I'm not going to do it. Where the, the pattern in Scripture really comes out of the most succinct example is here in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John are saying God's authority is over your authority, so we have to obey God rather than man. That's the guideline. God's authority, when God's authority is violated by any human in any area of authority, that's when the only time we're justified in violating that authority. Fourth thing we learned from Romans 13 is that the governing authority is God's servant. Even though he may be an atheist or a pagan, 
For example, we'll, as we look at, prob- I hope tonight we'll get there, Nebuchadnezzar and the uh, Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire. Now, at the time that, that Paul wrote, wrote Romans 13, as I pointed out, Nero is in the positive honeymoon phase, as it were, of his administration. Nero reigned as Caesar from A.D. 54 to 68. Paul wrote Romans sometime around 57, A.D. 57, so three years into Nero's reign. On, on, um, at sometime around 59 to 60, there was a conspiracy led by Nero's mother uh, against him, and uh, that was defeated, and she was killed. And after that, he just went downhill uh, until uh, his death in uh, about 60, uh, On July 18th of 64, Rome began to burn. And so rather than taking uh, responsibility for its burning, not that he started it, but uh, in, not rather than taking responsibility for his administration, Nero looked for a scapegoat and he blamed it on the Christians. That's in 64. In 67, three years after that, a year before Nero died, Paul writes in Titus 3.1, put to Titus, put them in mind to to be subject or to submit to principalities and powers to obey magistrates and to be ready to every good work. So here you have Paul under both the good administration of Nero and the evil administration of Nero saying the same thing. Now, in the eight years or so between the writing of Romans and the writing of Titus, Paul had a lot of intimate encounters with the Roman Empire. He's been arrested several times. He was almost uh, flogged in uh, uh, Jerusalem until he said, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You, you can't flog a Roman citizen. He has uh, been on trial numerous times and presented his case, his defense, before numerous authorities within the Roman Empire. He was uh, released from um, his first imprisonment under Nero, and then he completed another journey which is not covered. It's only hinted at in Scripture. And then he is rearrested uh, about and is executed between the time that he wrote Titus and the time of Nero's death. So he's experienced both the blessing as well as the negatives of the of Roman authority, and yet he consistent he is consistent in his message of obedience to that uh, to that authority. As I said, Paul wrote Titus in about sixty seven, just two years earlier. Uh, Peter wrote the passage we looked at briefly last time where he says the same thing at the same time that Nero is still in his, his uh, most evil period. And, there, and in First Peter 2, Peter says, Therefore submit to yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now when he says every ordinance, what we will see is that there are specific exceptions to that in the Scripture. And so, as I pointed out from the very first lesson, this does not, the scriptures do not give human authorities, whether it's government, whether it's the husband in the marriage, whether it's the parents in the family, unlimited authority. There are limits on every authority. So when Peter says, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, 
If there's a conflict between a human ordinance, a direct conflict between a human ordinance and a divine ordinance, you always obey God rather than man. He understands that very clearly because he's the one who made the statement back in Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 20. So he says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. How many people ask the question, well, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, one will is to submit to the authority that God has set over you. This is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, does that mean that that's always going to work out? And by doing good, you're eventually going to uh, surmount the opposition of evil bureaucrats? No, it doesn't. Uh, but it does mean that your testimony has not been uh, violated. Your testimony has not been tarnished by your disobedience. Two, right, two wrongs don't make something right. I don't know how many times I heard my mother say that when I was growing up. It's probably tattooed on the back of my head in some way. And yet we live in a culture that seems to think that if somebody has done something wrong, that that also justifies our wrong actions and it never does. Two wrong actions don't cancel each other. We can never return evil for evil. So even when evil is done to us, we are to respond in good, for uh, that we may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. We respond it's free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. That's the other end of the problem, saying that because I'm free, because I'm under God's authority, I can do whatever I want to, and judge other authorities. We can't do that either. Liberty is not a license for sin or a license for vice, as stated in this translation. Conclusion, honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So when Peter summarizes this, these are really the principles. Are we honoring the king? Are we honoring the government authority? And that means we have to honor the office even though the person in the office may be uh, unlikable, they may be, uh, we, they may be a person with whom we violently disagree, they may be a person that we despise in terms of their personal ethics or their personal behavior, but we are to, we are to respect the office. That applies for every office of authority, whether it's the, uh, an employer-employee relationship, whether it's a parent-child relationship, whether it is a husband-wife relationship, that if you are a woman and you are married to a man who is not a believer, you're married to a man who is uh, may, may be abusive in, to some degree. I'm not talking about someone who is hitting you or something of that nature, but somebody who's just, their behavior just isn't something that you like. And you may not uh, have much uh, respect for them as a person, Nevertheless, you have to respect the office of husband. You have to respect the office of parent. If parents are irresponsible, if parents are wrong, if parents are unjust, you have to teach children to respect authority as authority because if you cannot distinguish between the office and the person in the office, then it is not long before you are violating every area of, of authority because you began to disrespect it. I remember uh, having a nice discussion with my father as I learned about this 
when uh, Nixon was on his way down in, uh, I guess that was about the summer of 73 or 74, how important it was never to, 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 to say things, you can't say certain things about the president because he's the president. It doesn't matter whether you like him. It doesn't matter what he's done. You have to respect the office even if the person is not someone you can respect. Because once you start dis- disrespecting the office, you get that confused, then you're going to go down a slippery slope of um, leading to rebellion. I'm not saying that's easy. First Peter 2.12, I want you to look at the context surrounding those verses I just spoke of. He in- introduces it, Peter introduces it in verse 12 by saying, that we are to have, it's a sort of an imperative participle there, having your conduct or your conduct should be honorable among the Gentiles so that when people look at us, when they look at what we say and how we talk and how we respond to things, that it is in honor, that when they speak against you as evildoers so that when you and I are unjustly accused of things, and we live in a world today when Christians are the only uh, whipping boy left in society. We can't blame anybody else, so everybody dumps on the uh, on evangelical Christians, and it's always the Christian's fault, ultimately. So when they speak against us and, and make these false claims that we are evildoers, that our good works, uh, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation is a term referring to the day of judgment, We may not see justification in this life, but that justification will be there before the throne of God at the uh, great white throne judgment. Now, after Peter said this about the government, he then applies the same principle of authority to uh, slaves, uh, which applies to its translated servants, but the word doulos indicates slaves as well. Slaves, submit to your masters with all fear. Their fear is in the sense of respect. So again, there is to be respect for the authority, the position of authority, even if the person within the position of authority is not respectable. He, he, Peter says, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, that just doesn't resonate with what we learn from contemporary culture. Contemporary culture says if your boss is unreasonable or unjust, if he's not worthy of respect, then you have every right in the world to disobey him, to gossip or slander behind his back, to run him down, to uh, commit a character assassination. And you have the right to do that about anyone in a position of authority if they are uh, in your opinion, uh, unjust or doing something wrong, then you have the right to uh, disrespect them. And that is not what the Scripture says. He says we are to submit to those in authority with all respect. Verse 19, for this is commendable. And then I want you to pay attention. I think this is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture in relation to unjustified suffering. Because that's the bottom line is we look at an authority that wants us to do something we don't want to do, and we just think we're put upon. 
How can they ask us to do that? How can that person expect us to do that? That is totally uncalled for. That is, that is totally unjustified. We're, we're right. And we're just, all of a sudden, our whole narcissistic self-absorption comes out. And I learned watching uh, junior high and high school kids when I was a teacher for a couple of years back in the mid-'70s that whenever you, you accuse them of anything, the first thing out of their right was, you've got to respect my rights. It was pure self-absorption. And they're so concerned about what's right for them. That is not the biblical orientation. So Peter says, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God. Now notice that. If because of conscience toward God. The conscience is your set of norms and standards, that which is right or wrong. If because you are obeying the right set of standards in your conscience established by the Word of God and divine viewpoint, if because you're doing the right thing for the right reason toward God, you endure grief and you suffer wrongly, you know, you've been, you've been uh, the victim of disrespect, you've been unjustly treated, in your opinion you've been abused or taken advantage of. Uh, Peter says, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But in other words, when you do something wrong and there's a justified punishment, of course we take it patiently. We know we did wrong. We take the punishment. And then Peter says, but when you do good and you suffer for it, in other words, you do good and you are unjustly treated, and you are punished, and you didn't do what they said you did, or you are reviled by people when you've had uh, pure motives. Uh, Peter says, if you are beaten for your faults, you, uh, he says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, that's just not our natural orientation from the sin nature. The point he is making is very simple. If you do, if you do bad, if you're, if you're disobedient to an authority, if you violate the rules and you're punished for it, of course you're going to, you're, you're going to take it because you know you deserve the punishment. But if you're doing good, you're doing everything right for the right reasons and you're reviled, you're punished, you are slandered, then you keep your mouth shut, you put it in the hands of the Lord, you take it and you endure patiently, and that is what receives commendation from God, not now, but at the judgment seat of Christ. Of course, you need to be in fellowship. You need to be handling it not out of arrogance, but out of humility and obedience before God. So this passage in Peter that talks about submitting to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake is couched within clear examples and other areas of authority that we are to submit to those authorities even when we think that authority is unjust because it honors God and it honors man. But there are still, as I said, limitations. So let's look at a couple of these limitations. I want to start with the uh, first clear case of limitation uh, in the in the Old Testament. I want to go back to Exodus chapter 1. Now, there are a number of different examples that I can go to in the Old Testament, and you may be able to come up with some that I haven't come up with, but what we need to think about is examples where somebody is in a position where they are to submit to an authority, 
and they disobeyed that authority. And what are the ramifications of that? And what are the conditions surrounding it? In Exodus chapter 1, we have the situation begins the first uh, 12 verses or so, 12, 13 verses, talk about what transpired in the period between the arrival of Jacob and his sons and family in uh, at the time when Joseph was still alive to this period some, and it begins really about 200 or so years after uh, Jacob and the family had arrived. And by this time we're told that um, a new pharaoh comes into power and he is not a pharaoh who had respect for Joseph or the benefit that Joseph had brought to Egypt. During this time, we're told in verse 7, the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So God has blessed them. There has been a supernatural preservation so that there's no infant mortality uh, during this time or very little infant mortality among the Jews so that their population is uh, expanding exponentially. Now, we know from the census that that Moses took among the uh, among the Jews that's listed at the beginning of the book of Numbers that the male population of the males over the age of 20 numbered approximately 600 to 650,000. So we can reach a somewhat of a, an estimate on the population among the uh, among the Jews by saying for every adult male you had one adult uh, female and you had at least if you had just one child for every two adults and there were probably more than that if you just had one child then you have a population of 1.8 million that is sneered at by liberal theologians they just can't imagine that Moses is is going through Sinai with two million Jews. And I think it was probably a little more than that. I think it's at least that number. You have two children for every for every couple, and it was probably much more than that. Remember, Jacob had uh, 12 sons and one daughter. So if you have more than two, then the population would have been um, uh, two and a half million. If you had five, it just grows exponentially. So I think that the population, though, of Israel uh, by the time of the Exodus had reached a size of around two, somewhere between two and three million and possibly uh, possibly more. And this is possible within this short time. There have been a number of scholars who have worked through all of the uh, all of the numbers showing that it is it is uh, conceivable for a Jewish population to have increased at this rate during that period of approximately 400 years between the time of uh, Abraham and the time of the Exodus. So in verse 8, we're told a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. The point of that is that he doesn't have respect for Joseph. He doesn't have a positive attitude towards the Jewish people. And so he sees that they are being overrun, that uh, the Jewish birth rate is much, much higher than the Egyptian birth, weight, birth rate. And so he is operating on the basis of fear that with this strong people in their midst that they could easily be overpowered and they could lead a, a revolt. So his problem is to uh, have some population control. 
and some birth control so that he can limit the danger that he sees coming uh, from the uh, uh, rapid increase of the numbers of the Jewish people. So he says to his people, verse 9, Let look, the power of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they join our enemies, fight against us, and, and then leave. So verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them. So the first thing was an, they, they enslaved them. They enslaved the Israelites and then they um, put them into uh, service to build the cities such as Pithom and Ramses. But notice verse 12, God's sovereignty works even in the midst of that negative situation. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. This is the hand of God. And so they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with vigor, and we go on talking about the fact that they made it more difficult for them uh, to manufacture bricks, etc. And then in verse 15 we read, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. Now both of these names are attested in Hebrew nameless from this period of time. So these are clearly Semitic or Hebrew names. There are some that suggest that when it says the Hebrew midwives, that the meaning of that isn't that they were, they were Hebrew themselves, but they were midwives, they were Egyptian midwives for the Hebrews. But, uh, and part of that rationale is that if you're having such a high birth rate, birth rate among the Jews, then why would you only have two midwives? Now, there are a couple of suggestions uh, to try to get around that. Some say that these were older uh, ladies and that there were really a number of, of, um, of midwives that were uh, helping out in the birth process and that these were the, the two who headed up the, all of the Jewish, all of the Hebrew midwives. That's not necessary. I think that um, uh, it's very likely that as in many, there are many cultures in the world where the the use of a midwife is not necessary. Um, one example is just among uh, uh, Native American Indian tribes. They did not know the use of a midwife unless there was a problem. Uh, in many cases, the women would be out in the fields, and they would, uh, uh, when when uh, the time came to, and they went into labor, they would just go off into the woods and they would have a baby and then they would go back out a couple hours later and they'd still be out in the fields. And this is, there's evidence of this that's cited uh, in a number of different uh, cultures around the world. And so it could be that, that in the statement that's made uh, by the midwives later on that the, uh, that the uh, Hebrew women were... And the text usually translates it lively, but it has to do with the fact that they were vigorous. And so uh, the, the idea is that they really didn't need the, the services of the midwives except in rare, rare situations. So what they, they say as a defense later on in verse, uh, verse 19 uh, may actually be an honest statement that they really didn't need uh, a lot of peop- uh, a, a lot of midwives and the text at a at, at at its basic reading indicates that there were only only these these two now there are some that suggest that when they uh give their their rationale later on 
and says that say uh, for in verse 19 for example they say because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them this is sort of a third person type uh, narrative that doesn't necessarily mean there are other midwives they're just talking in terms of a general general statement in, with reference to themselves but nevertheless what the situation is is that the king makes a command of them and he says to them that when you come to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. And so the command from the Pharaoh is that they're to go, and if the, the, the baby is male, kill the baby. If it's female, then the female shall live. And eventually the, the, their strategy was that these, these uh, female babies would then be part of uh, harems in the Egyptian court and that this would be used to destroy the uh, ethnic integrity of the uh, of the Hebrews. And so, but he gives a command that is in direct violation of God's command. So the person in authority is issuing a command that is 180 degrees opposite the biblical command. The biblical command here, and almost everybody you read is going to quote what? The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit murder. Trouble is, the Ten Commandments haven't been given yet, right? So how do you know that murder is wrong? You go back to Genesis chapter 9 and the, um, and the Noahic Covenant. So there's, it's clearly understood that murder is wrong. You don't have to have the Ten Commandments in order to know that murder was wrong. So you have a person in authority giving a specific command that is that directly contradicts a specific mandate of God. And so they uh, fear God. Verse 17, the midwives feared God. There, there is one authority saying to do one thing, a lower authority saying to do something else. And so they recognize that the principle is they don't put themselves in a position of judging the Pharaoh. They follow the, the mandates of the higher authority. And so... The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So eventually the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively, or the term could be uh, translated vigorous, uh, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, tip, normally what you will hear in terms of the interpretation of this is that they, that they lied. This may not necessarily be a lie. This may be true under certain circumstances. We don't know enough. We do know that the Scripture never uh, condemns them for saying this. In fact, in the next verse... We read, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. Now, what I find interesting about this, as also about Rahab, which is another example that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, another example of someone in disobedience to an authority. Rahab was uh, a prostitute, and in that culture at that time, what I've read indicates that basically what it means is she sort of ran an inn, and that was part of the extended services provided in a uh, an inn at that time, and that when the two spies from Israel came in, 
she already had an understanding of what God had been doing among the Jewish people. And in fact, she says that, uh, that when they came out of Egypt, everything that God had done to deliver uh, the, the Jews out of Egypt at the Exodus was known by the Canaanites. And at that time, which was 40 years earlier, they were scared to death because they knew that God was bringing them to Canaan and had given that land uh, to the Jewish people. And yet because of the disobedience of the Exodus generation, they ended up going under 40 years of divine discipline and they didn't, that generation was not allowed to go into the land. It, uh, the only two from that generation allowed to go into the land were Caleb Caleb and Joshua. And so Rahab, as a Gentile, is in an interesting scenario, not unlike the scenario of the midwives, where she has a, a, and is in an authority relationship to the king of Jericho, the ruler of Jericho. And she hides these two spies, and then the uh, king of Jericho sends out his uh, uh, police to inquire where they are, and she says, well, they're not here. They already left. And so you have these two instances of lies. Now, I'm going to present a scenario for you to think about. Uh, I'm not going to commit myself to this as an absolute principle, but I think it is something that we should pay attention to. In two things that are, that, a couple of things that are in common here in, in both of these passages. Number one, a, lives are being protected and preserved by someone who tells a what appears to be a, a, a lie. Second is that nowhere in the Scripture are they ever condemned for the lie, but they are commended for their action. Third thing we, I, I've noticed is that the way this is typically handled by theologians and ethicists is to separate the act of preserving the life from the lie that they told to cover the situation. Now, I have a problem with that. The problem is that the Scripture never doesn't bifurcate these episodes that way. Second problem I have is that, especially in Joshua, if you read the book of Joshua, a major theme in Joshua is a theme of deception, a theme of deception. Now, we typically think that it's, it's wrong, it's a sin to deceive someone. It may be that there are circumstances. The reason I hesitate on this is I don't want anybody uh, coming along using this as a justification, do whatever you want to do in terms of telling a lie, covering something up, or uh, something of that nature. There are significant differences. These are unique situations. What I would see the parallel with both of these situations being is the kind of circumstance that we have in both police work today and in uh, and in the, in the military and in uh, intelligence work that is done by nations in sending uh, spies undercover into uh, foreign nations during times of war. There's a, is there a justification for lying in those circumstances? If you are an undercover officer going into a uh, set of apartment complexes over here in Fondren Southwest or just down here in Spring Branch and you go into uh, apartment complex there as a undercover officer and you've got a fake identity and everything about you is fake and you're trying to buy some uh, uh, cocaine or, or drugs or whatever it is you're, you're doing, you are engaged in deception. Is that 
absolutely ethically wrong because deception is always wrong. See, what we've done is we've set up this, 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 this absolute deception is always wrong. If, if that is a true absolute, then we've got other problems in life. Now, I'm not going to have a show of hands. I ought to have a show of hands, though, just, just out of curiosity. But I'm not going to do that tonight. But I would bet that maybe I ought to do it the other way. How many people here leave all the lights off in your house, turn all the radios and TV off when you leave and you're gone for an extended period of time? Nobody. You know, we leave the lights on, we leave the TV on or the radio or we put a timer on the lamp so that if anybody is scoping out our house, they're going to think that somebody's there. The lights come on, they go off, they hear, they hear voices. That's deception. One of my favorite deceptions was when I was in seminary. And I was a poor seminary student and had a peeping Tom at my house. So I came down to Houston, and my folks had had a burglar system set in their house at that time. And so I took their signs. They had extra signs. I took their signs and stickers and put them all around my house. I didn't have a burglar alarm. But I was doing that in order to deceive any crooks from uh, breaking in that they would think that there was a burglar alarm. Now, is that wrong? It's deceptive. And there are many ways in which we engage in levels of deception like that that we at some level recognize is perfectly right if you're engaged in a warfare or combat situation, whether it's the combat with the criminal element or combat with a foreign enemy. Now think about this. I'm just I'm throwing this out because uh, a couple of years ago I called a friend of mine up, uh, Tim Demi. Tim is a brilliant, uh, brilliant scholar. Tim uh, was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary. He went on to earn two different doctoral degrees, at, plus a I think two or three other master's degrees. One from Cambridge, uh, different schools. Uh, and he spent, he was a chaplain, full-time chaplain in the Navy, and he taught military ethics at the um, uh, Naval War College up in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. So I called him up, this was probably about four or five years ago, and I called him up one day and I said, okay, have you ever worked through the issues related to the midwives and Rahab in terms of an ethical justification for deception and warfare? I never thought of that. And I've inquired, I've asked this question several times of men in the military that I know who are focused on the word and other chaplains, and nobody ever seems to think about it this way. Now, it doesn't originate with me. I've read some, read some articles related to this, so it's not something that I came up with on my own. But I do believe that there is a, a, significant, a significant argument here for the fact that deception is not always wrong. Deception in a combat situation, when it is related to that combat situation, not just CYA, but related to that combat situation, it is justified. Now, let me take it to another level. Are you in a combat situation? We're all in a spiritual combat situation. The two midwives in Egypt are in a combat situation between the God who's sitting on the throne of Egypt because in their system the, the king is God and the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are right at the front line in terms of this command. Are they going to obey this God or are they going to obey the God of Scripture? And in their deception here, if there is a deception, I'm not convinced there is here. Rahab, of course, did. But in both situations, it could very well be that this is a justifiable deception because it is understood within this framework of combat. In Joshua, just after the Jericho episode with Rahab, uh, in the next chapter, you have the assault on Ai. At the initial assault by the, by the uh, Israelites on Ai, they're defeated. They're defeated be, not because of technology, not because of manpower, not because of skill, any military skill. They're defeated because God had told them that under no condition was anybody to take any of the gold, silver, or any other plunder from Jericho. All was supposed to be destroyed. And there was one man named Achan who did not uh, follow that. He uh, got some plunder, and he dug a hole under his tent and buried it there. And because of that hidden sin within the camp of Israel, uh, God brought judgment on them, and so they were defeated, and a number of lives were lost in that initial assault on Ai. Following that, there's the episode where Achan's sin is revealed, and there is a cleansing that takes place in the nation, which included the death of not just Achan, but also his wife and his children, and all of his goods and everything were burned and destroyed. There's a uh, complete cleansing there of sin from the nation. Following that, God then gave uh, marching orders to Joshua for his assault on Ai. He was supposed to... This this is somewhat uh, imitated many times in history, uh, especially by uh, the Apaches and other American Indians at different times. But they divide, the Jews were to divide their forces so that they attacked with a frontal assault with a small force that would easily be uh, over, overrun. And they were to have this frontal assault, and the rest of the army was going to be hidden down a valley in an ambush scenario so that what you have is an act of deception in combat where they come in and they attack and they allow themselves to be overrun and they begin to retreat and they they mimic a rout and they run from the uh, uh, forces of AI and the forces of AI pursue them uh, and go right into the ambush and then they are slaughtered and annihilated completely uh, by the forces of Israel. So God uses deception within the strategy of warfare. So I suggest that what we see in both of these circumstances is something very interesting that would give a rationale, a legitimate biblical rationale for the use of deception in specific combat-type scenarios and that the actions of the two midwives, the actions of Rahab, uh, must be understood within that warfare context. So, nevertheless, in conclusion with the midwives, what we have is a mandate, a command by a person in authority to individual believers to specifically violate a commandment of God. They have a choice. They can either obey the human authority or they can obey God. They choose to obey God even if that will cost them their life. Uh, they don't uh, They don't go out and engage in... 
uh, trying to develop some sort of uh, pressure situation to change the mind of the person in authority. They don't engage in some kind of social reformation. They just simply say, we're going to obey God rather than man, and so they obey God and disobey the human authority. Now let's go to a second example. There are other examples in the Old Testament that are usually cited in a study like this. For example, Rahab, which I alluded to a minute ago, as well as uh, Esther. I'm not sure Esther really fits, so I'm not going to talk about that. But I do want to take the closing uh, 10 minutes or so to talk about the case of David. This is extremely important, so I want you to turn over with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're just going to sort of hop through some of these statements, and I want you to read what is going on in the Scripture. I know I summarized this last time, but I want to look specifically at uh, what takes place in the text. So what happens is this situation, Saul has been king for about uh, 30 years at this point, and he is going to disobey God. Uh, he is commanded to destroy the Amalekites, and he is supposed to uh, annihilate all of them, uh, and he is supposed to annihilate all of them uh, along with all of their all of their animals and all their possessions. Verse 15.3, the command is, go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, uh, camel and donkey. So Saul doesn't do this. He kills most of the people, and he, uh, but he keeps all the ox and sheep for, for himself, and he lets Agag, the king of the Amalekites, live. And so for this, Samuel is going to uh, confront him, and Samuel does that. In fact, I just love this scene. It was portrayed in the movie King David uh, where uh, Samuel comes in, and he just pulls this broadsword out, out, uh, out of Saul's scabbard and whirls around and decapitates Agag in just, just a microsecond. It's just a great scene, and it depicts... What I like about it is it depicts the power and the strength of, of Samuel. He's not some wimpy, little, ascetic, uh, monastic creature who lives off in another world somewhere, but he is a strong, powerful, gritty, uh, gutsy individual. And so that's a, a great scene. And then he confront, Samuel confronts Saul, and I want you to see... Um, what he says, just point out, pointing out a couple of uh, verses. Uh, when, when Samuel confronts him, he says, uh, he reminds him who he is. When you, in verse 17, when you were little in your own eyes, you were, not, were you, not the head of the, you were not the head of the tribes of Israel. And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, fight against them until they are consumed. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of God? And then Saul tries to rationalize it and justify it. And then Samuel comes back in verse 22 and says, has the Lord as uh, great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, it's more important to obey God than to go through this ritual. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion, this is key, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, why does, why does Samuel say a rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft? 
It's because witchcraft is the product of demonism and is associated with Satan, and, and rebellion is exactly what Satan did in eternity past in his revolt against God. So rebellion against authority, whether it's God or an, an established authority by God, is tantamount to witchcraft. It is following the thinking of the devil. That is a powerful verse that has to be understood and dealt with whenever anyone contemplates disobeying a legitimate authority. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offering sacrifices? Uh, he said, for rebellion is a sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the, he also has rejected you from being king. So here's an announcement from Samuel that God has rejected Saul from being king. Now, if you skip down to verse 26, at the end of verse 26, Samuel says, For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. But is Saul still the legitimate king of Israel? Yes, God has removed him from office. He has just rejected him as being a dynastic head. It's going to end with you. Samuel says in verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Now, if you look at verse chapter 16, verse 13, we see that God then anoints, has Samuel anoint the next king of Israel, David. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. So David's anointed, but he's not king. Saul is still the legitimate anointed king of Israel. And notice what happens next. Verse 14, but the Spirit of the Lord, verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. But in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubles Saul. He's coming under divine discipline, and God is allowing him to come under demon uh, oppression at this point, not demon possession, but just oppression at, at this point. And so this uh, this begins the deterior the final deterioration, decline, and discipline on on King Saul. Chapter seventeen gives us the episode of David's defeat of Goliath, and then David is going to be rewarded. Part of the reward was that God said that whoever defeated Goliath uh, would receive Saul's daughter's hand. Uh, in marriage. So when we get down to the reward section in chapter 18, we find that now uh, Saul begins to enter into massive, complex mental attitude sin because of David. David is praised beyond Saul for his valiant prowess as as a warrior. They would sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And so this uh, makes Saul extremely jealous. And we read uh, down in uh, verse 9 that Saul eyed David from that day forward. He's got his eye on him. And then it happens on the next day, in the next verse it says, it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, not in him, that's possession, but upon him, that's external oppression, came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played uh, played music with his hand. This, I think, is another example of the word prophecy used in relation to music. Clearly it's there in the context. Uh, it's not prophecy in terms of foretelling. Uh, 
but there's a spear nearby for Saul. And in verse 11, Saul casts the spear. This is his first attempt to murder David. And he's thinking, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence, what? Twice. So twice that day, Saul tries to kill David. And what do we read in verse 15, uh, 12 and 15? That Saul is afraid of David. Then there's a second attempt to murder David, starting in verse 17, uh, related to uh, the, the oldest daughter is married off to someone else. And so uh, David is going to marry the next daughter, Michael. Now, it's interesting. A lot of people have trouble pronouncing this name spelled M-I-C-H-A-L. You look at it in English, you want to pronounce it Michael, or some people have tried to pronounce it Michelle. Yesterday, I went to a, a cafe over off of uh, West Lynn and Richmond Avenue called Aroma. They're changing the name to uh, Mariah. And uh, Milton Bell, who some of you know here, has been frequenting this place a lot lately. And uh, it's owned by a Jewish lady from Jerusalem. And so he's told her about his pastor, and he's taken him to Jerusalem and how his pastor loves Israel, and so she's wanted to meet his his pastor. So I happened to be in the neighborhood yesterday, and I went by there, and I went in, and from his description, I thought this, this was the lady behind the cash register, so I just introduced myself. And, and so she was just really excited and came out and just couldn't wait to shake my hand. And she said, my name is Michal, like Saul's daughter who David married. Mikhail. And so we had a great time, had, had lunch. It's fabulous. She imports almost all of her food from Jerusalem. And, uh, and so I highly recommend it. It's great if you want Middle Eastern food. Fabulous. So anyway, this is Mikhail. And Saul tries to murder David here. This is a second murder. Chapter 19. I won't go through all of this. Uh, the way he tries to do this is, is slick. He, in, instead of directly killing David, what he's going to do is he says, Oh, you want to marry my daughter? Okay, here's the dowry. You have to go bring me a hundred uh, Philistine foreskins. You have to go circumcise a hundred Philistines. So David gets his warriors together and they co- go kill 200 Philistines and circumcise them and uh, bring that back for the dowry. But see, what Saul was trying to do was set him up, put him in a situation where he would be vulnerable militarily and be killed. And then uh, ch- in chapter 19, there's another attempt in the first eight verses. Then there's a fourth attempt after verse 10 where Saul again, third time, tries to uh, pin David to the wall with a spear. In chapter 20, there's a fifth attempt on David. I'm not going to go through all of the details, but it's always one of my... Uh, uh, I always love the way English translations sort of try to get around the, the uh, uh, real meaning of the, he- the Hebrew text. Uh, Jonathan helps David get away in chapter 20 to avoid that assassination attempt. And when David, I mean, when Saul finds out in verse 30, we read, then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. So Saul's out of fellowship. He's as mad and angry as he possibly can be. And you know the kind of words that come out of your mouth when you're really mad or angry. So Saul does not say, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's not how you talk when you're out of fellowship and you're mad. Okay, you can figure it out. One of my favorite, Samuel is very earthy in the, in the Hebrew. The next thing that happens is David is running away from Saul, and he seeks protection and food from the priests of Nob. That's in chapter 21. And then in retaliation, when Saul finds out about it in chapter 22, he has his henchman Doeg go to, to the priests at Nob, 
and killed, and in verse uh, 22, verse 18, Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now remember, Saul didn't kill the oxen and donkeys and sheep that belonged to the Amalekites. So he kills the oxen, donkeys, and sheep that belong to the priests, along with killing the, uh, annihilating all of the priests. In um, chapter 24, we have the episode where David is in the cave at En Gedi, and uh, he and his men are hiding back in the recesses of the cave, and Saul comes in to relieve himself, and all of his men are saying to him, this is the time to reveal. God's put him in your hand. Look at this. It's God's will. Saul's right there in front of you. All you got to do is just go to your arm's length, and you can just skewer him right there. You know, peer pressure, wrong peer pressure. But David chose his character, and he refuses And what he does is he goes over, he secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. I talked about it last time, and uh, Jay Collins informed me uh, afterward that there have been various uh, rock and obsidian uh, knives that have been found by archaeologists that are as sharp as any surgical instrument today, so that he easily could have had uh, a a weapon that would have sliced the hem off the robe that would not have uh, given him away. And then David comes out of the uh, uh, of the cave afterward. When Saul's gone out, David then comes out, holds up the uh, piece of the garment, and he and he says uh, that look at the row, corner of the robe in my hand. I could have taken your life, but I'm not trying to kill you. I'm not out for you. He says in verse 12, "Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you." What's he saying? You may be unjust. I may have every justification in the world to take your life, but I'm not going to violate the office of king that you have been placed in by God, and if God's going to remove you, then it is his responsibility. I am putting it in the Lord's hands. Verse 15, Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. And then a similar thing happens a second time, but this time Saul and his uh, men are camped out, and David sneaks into the camp and grabs his spear and his uh, water gourd and a couple of other things and goes out uh, from the camp, and then he calls back to the camp and, and uh, reveals the fact that he snuck in past all of Saul's guards and everything and had the opportunity to kill uh, Saul again but did not do it. So what we learn from this I think is something that has to be taken into account in terms of what is said in the New Testament of of authority, is that God establishes authority, and if there are circumstances where where human beings are ever justified in removing an authority, it has to be an exceptional situation. Saul was as evil and wicked, he was murderous, as any ruler, any tyrant in history. And arguments that I often hear that if a government is tyrannical, then the citizens are justified in removing that, that government. Don't wash in light of the example of David and Saul, because Saul is as evil as Nero was and is unjust as any king in history. And yet David gives us an example that 
It is not for us to make that decision. It's in the Lord's hands. Now, we'll come back and look at Daniel next time. Father, thank you for letting us look at your word this time, thinking through some complex, difficult issues. Help us as we think them through that we are willing to submit to the authority of Scripture, the authority of your word, and recognize that uh, that you have established these authorities and that the issue here is not arrogance and self absorption and self-justification, but the issue is humility and submission to your authority and what you have revealed in your will. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.